I know it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl. I'm leaving you Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Sounds to me, girl, you know I've done all I can. See, I beg, stole, and I borrowed. Yeah. Oh. Why I'm easy. Uh, I'm, I'm easy, easy like Sunday morning. morning. Uh, <laughs> That's why I'm easy. easy. <laughs> I'm easy, easy like Sunday, Sunday morning. It's a good thing nobody's here right now. <laughs> extremely good because two Portuguese trying to sing a song Sunday morning and we're not even drunk man it'd be interesting I gotta start doing podcasts where we're completely plastered and hammered and like what do you want to talk about I don't know let's talk about beverages that would be uh, very interesting Um, maybe hopefully you can invite me next time oh it's true eh? maybe I should do a whole series of shows where it's just strictly about booze and drinking and see what happens I'm not a very much a connoisseur of I'm not either, and I probably have not had a drink this year. Oh wow, good! I don't think I've had a beer. I may have had some wine. Okay, but I've definitely have not had some spirits. Right, not well, yet. I just came from peaks. So, so you basically drank uh, more spirit than water. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they seem to uh, not drink much water over there. Well, there's it's water more, in in the spirit. Yeah, yes, in that's the spirit, the in the aguardente, yeah. in the liqueur. Did you bring in the wine? Back? No, no, eh? just no, in case. Because I just had the carry-ons, so I didn't have any check baggage, so I, I couldn't really bring any back. So, uh, remember the good old days okay. I could bring back so much and just you're worried about getting caught and not so much the weight. But well, yeah, even more so would be like bringing the cheese. Yeah, the, the cheese is big too and all that stuff. stuff like that. Eh? Yeah, but the dog the, starts if smelling you get it. caught, then it's a big doomed. thing. Yeah, so I try to keep it pretty low key when it comes to bringing stuff back. Larry's back on the show. You're making your it's way me. through Canada. I guess right. across Canada and then over to Portugal and then over to the Azores. And then did you go back the exact same way? Uh, Azores, yeah. Lisbon? No. no oh. I, it was uh, Lisbon and then back back to Canada. Then to Canada, so, right? Yeah, I spent uh, the night in Lisbon. It's just the way the flights are from SATA. If anyone's flown in or out of I the Azores. So you're very restricted in when... You can fly in and out, so there's very few flights. So, I guess I guess the Azores are just not as popular, so to speak, for them to be booking more flights. No, I think SATA just runs the show over there, so yeah, they decide monopoly. how things yeah. work. I know we were late to leave to go to Toronto, and it's it looked like it was they were waiting for some kind of package. So there was a there's skids of things that had just arrived and then they put it in the plane then they started boarding people and they were about half an hour 40 minutes late and 
we were just sitting there waiting to board the plane. The like, inner workings of stuff that we don't know what's really going on, and they just tell us whatever they want to tell us. But yeah, uh, the beauty of traveling. At least you got to travel. That's yeah, a good I think thing. Anyone, any advice for anybody traveling these days or just traveling in general is just give yourself a lot of time and patience because you're going to need traveling. It. Your your hands are tied. There's nothing that you can do to change anything so you just have to sit and wait and just accept it and especially if you're going to the azores <laughs> you almost want to take a waiting. boat eh? just take a boat next time man yeah, yeah. but then there's choppy water as well so today's show uh we want to actually talk a little bit more get into detail about tiling and stone and yeah all the technical side of things and and hopefully educate a lot of the younger generation and hopefully upset a lot of the older gen gen generation and telling them it's how that the first time things are done exactly everything is changing really quickly rapidly uh so your deets again i didn't write them down but key tile right yeah no. that's uh key tile and key surfaces on yeah. instagram and then uh also the email key surfaces at gmail.com and then we've got info at ketile.ca. Perfect. All right. Yeah. So, Larry, how do you want to begin? Where do you want to begin? Well, we can talk a little about what's happening today um, versus what was happening 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so we can talk about how the older generation, like you were saying, the older guys, how much things have changed that the newer generation, the kind of up and coming, have to deal with that the older guys never did. Do like, the old guys, I've met my share, they dismiss the thought of uncoupling membrane. They dismiss foam boards. They're so used to dry pack, rubber membranes, cement board, or green board. When you go really old. Yes. Yeah. That's, so there's Most of still those guys that, aren't really working anymore. Right? Well, they still are swinging it. They're still doing some stuff. But Those I mean, guys are in their 60s, 70s yeah. and plus. And tile and stone is not necessarily a 60s, 70s plus game. It shouldn't be because it's really hard in your body. Like my father, he's now, he just turned 63. He's still playing the game. But, you know, his shoulder is masked. The toll. Yeah. It's, it's taking a toll in his back um you know had a bad head injury from a fall so it's really tough on your body right and you can only go so far and i think as any tradesman doesn't matter what you do i think you need to kind of prepare yourself for retirement other you switch gears as you get older you're still in the trade but you play a different position so you're not as much you know as as hands-on playing kind of like a more of a ma managerial role or educate you, them yeah or you educate or you become an inspector or a consultant or something you know you work i know a lot of guys that used to be a tile setter and then they started working for Schluter as a rep, right? So yeah. doing technical and stuff like yeah. that, right? Or working for Latacrete uh, for technical or sales, you know, from a pay and so on and so forth, right? So at least you take all your knowledge that you've learned doing it for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and then you can still be in the um, industry, but you don't have to break your back anymore, right? So... Uh, 
you know, for the for the younger guys in their 20s and 30s, you know, making good money. They're like, oh, everything's good. You know, need to start saving, investing, and looking in your future because you won't be able to be throwing down 500 square feet of tile when you're 60 years old, right? It is. Um, it's one of the trades that's extremely perishable, and and I know that a lot of tile setters that are in their late 20s, early 30s. They have the aches and pains. They have the creaks, and and you got to wonder how are they going to be ten years, twenty years from now? Because a framer can still keep on going, but a framer has its own problems as well too. Same with concrete. But you see, these bulldog type of concrete people, brick yep. people, mason people, and I, I guess it's more of a stubbornness is just drives them to keep on going, even though their body is about two steps behind. Yep. Right. But I, I tile. I think it just takes a real huge beating on the body which kind of translates to a beating mentally but you got to eventually i guess change the mindset maybe even in your late 30s early 40s you got to start thinking about i'm not going to be on my hands and knees dropping down two foot by four foot tiles or even doing slabs in the showers you can't and that's the other thing so when you were 20 years ago when you were 50 60 70 years old doing this trade it wasn't too bad. The tiles are still 12 by 12. Reasonable. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're 8 by 10s. Small box of tile weighs 10 pounds, right? So you can carry one, two of those, no problem, right? Now you're looking at, like you said, two foot by four foot tile. You've got a box. There's at least two or three pieces in it. You're looking at 80 plus pounds, carrying it up three flights of stairs, you know, because it's on the top floor of some house or something like that, right? Um, and especially with the commercial jobs, these guys that have done a lot of commercial, you have to produce, right? So you're moving and moving and moving and you're throwing down tile, you're mixing the thin set and, and go, 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 go. And you have to put the tile down because you ain't getting paid if you ain't putting tile. Yeah, it's really about production. It's strictly about production and then... Um, I always tell people that in the construction world, it's very much like prostitution, where <laughs> we are exchanging our bodies for work, right? That's very true. Right, in a different, different physical sense, but it's very much the same, right? We're just exchanging our body and giving it up and beating it so that we can do our job and make you know, a decent living while we're at it but i mean that living that you're making <laughs> the trade-off like out of all the i i'm I, i'm always respectful of the hardest trades out there that you guys are literally working for every penny you're making what you give up for that dollar versus other people and other trades and what they do for their dollar and i'm just i'm surprised what makes an individual want to become a tile setter stone setter that whole fabrication world. I mean, there's health risks. There's, there, you're, you're playing with some tools. You know, yeah. there's, there's quite a bit of an expensive arsenal of tools that you require. Large format, whatever, porcelain slabs, and you're scoring it. And then you've got the whole, that thing. You've got wet saws. You've got grinders, variable grinders. You've got polishing grinders. You've got all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, it depends on the type of work that you do, right? The level of work. And if you're doing residential, commercial, right? A, a commercial guy can show up with a bucket of tools 
in his mixer and that's all he needs right because he's just throwing down a bunch of full tiles and someone else is making the cuts with a you know bridge saw or something like that right yeah so yeah it really depends and if you're doing like high-end residential which we mostly do we have the half that arsenal of tools right we even have uh, hardy shears right Hardy shears. Oh, okay. I know yeah. what you're talking about. Hardy shears. So yeah. that when we're installing backer board, hardy backer board, you're not grinding it and creating this massive silica dust, dust. cloud yeah. you know, on the job site. So we're trying to respect other people. And that's another thing when you're on the job site, that that's something that's so important, not just your safety and your health, but the health of the other guys that are, yep. you know, yeah. around you <clears throat> when a carpenter is, you know, ripping a whole bunch of mdf you know he's got no vacuum or anything or a bag at least at his table saw and he's creating tons of dust everywhere and you know let's see he's got a mask on but every you know no one else does yeah and you know it's it's hard because you have to share the environment so you have to really be thinking about winter months the other people yeah all kind yeah. Of, you bring up a really good point i want to get started let's start with the base uh, but a few little shout outs here because you traveling to portugal you got to have a short layover here. So yes, we, that we did, was awesome. Yeah, we did a little <laughs> bit of a road trip, and we and I got to finally introduce you to a few of the guys on this side of the country. Yeah. And so just a shout-out to Tony from TC and then yep. uh, Gary Mares and the old man there from Mares Carpentry. Yep. Fabio, who was late, 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 <laughs> late, late, and he got to show us his site. Yep. Um, and then also Omid, we got to see there, and the boys there that were doing the job in Oakville. And yep. then also Joe, Joe. Joe from the Windows, right? Yeah. And Joe and Sam, right? So we wanted to just do a nice shout out to all the boys there yeah it was, and, really, uh, it was really great to meet them all they're all great guys yeah. and you can tell they're all hard working just like most of us out there just trying to make a living and trying to do a good job while you're doing it so i know that you're not and in these shows we're we're not loyal to any particular one brand everybody is using different brands you've probably have installed every single backer board type of material out there yes that i know Mm -hmm. that exists yeah there's sure there's some other backer board that maybe exists that i haven't done yet but so like 20 years ago it would have just been either i guess it depends on if it was track building 20 30 years ago track building would have just been green moisture board that would have been your shower application 20 years ago there was a mix you would either see aqua board so very cheap that green, it normally has like yeah. a green skin on yeah. regular drywall. Yeah. It wasn't very aqua. Then there was the green e-board. There's your concrete board was very popular, right? And hardy backer also was a very popular Back then as well too. choice yeah. of uh, backer board. And then later on, you started seeing the dense shield kind of go up the, with the fiberglass. Yep. Um, face on a gypsum product right and then there was now there's tons of different forms of the same thing just with different names right? different so. types of cement boards you had the styrofoam inside of it they started getting lighter that's right that yep. was a big problem is that you it's had the weight. The, yeah the oh. weight and cutting it too you you couldn't score it and snap nope. it but even with Hardy Board, they told you that their backer board, you can score it and snap it. But you never you got it. You could do the quarter inch, but there's no way it would take you all day to score and snap a half inch. Yeah. So you're, you're cutting it still. Yeah. And you weren't using shears. No. And you would be grinding. Yep. 
Yeah, Creating dust oh, as you grind right by the label there. It says not yes. safe in California. Uh, <laughs> never understood that, but I guess they have restrictions but in there. Canada, it's safe. Perfectly safe. Yeah. The air is different here. Yeah. It filters differently. <laughs> but nowadays, I guess everybody's doing foam boards of different variations of that. I would say, yeah, a good majority is using the foam board just mainly because of the ease of installation. The weight, of course, the one person can carry four or five sheets of four by eight. All the no way to problem, the top. All the way to the top. Yeah. Right. And there's no way that you could do that with <laughs> cement or even hardy or, no. or even drywall. Drywall is a pain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 a heavy product, right? Drywall, you could probably huff up, you know, two boards. Two guys, though, that'd still be a challenge. Yeah. And then, OK, so now you're doing that. And then there's a whole argument about. Uh, everyone's using caulking of some sort to a urethane. Yeah, some sort yeah. of urethane material to adhere together, and then you got Schluter who's using the banding. That's right, and, and that secures that. And yep. then, I mean, it, the nice thing is that when you have conversations with clients and you kind of explain to them that the tile is not the waterproofing element of this cross section design. That's right. Tile is not waterproofing. It doesn't matter if it's porcelain tile; it's still not the waterproofing because there's grout joints. That's right. And that's and where the even water porcelain, um, it has a very, very little, but it does still absorb some water. Right? Yeah. Um, it has an absorption rate and you can see normally all, all that details and data information on the box. It'll tell you like the moisture rating, slip rating and the quality of the tile on the box and then most guys don't follow that thinking oh yeah this is porcelain you know you don't need to seal it like we just we just seal everything that way we got it covered right we seal the grout seal the tile and then that way we're always covered and there's no discrepancies like oh did you remember to read the box and see if this you know What's but then the at least moisture? you do it and it's covered. And yeah. then, but with that, do you tell your clients that you'll have to return, I guess, based on how much it's used to reseal it? Because all sealers fade away over time, right? Yeah. So we use a penetrating sealer. So it goes into the surface. Even porcelain tiles? Yeah. Yeah. Which one's the one that you use? We have a few different ones, but the ones we use the most is Bulletproof from Laticrete. Okay. Is one of our. Now, before Miracle had one called Porous Plus. Yeah, I know that one. So we used to use that, but we can't get it here anymore. It's because of the... Um, VOCs? The VOCs and the rating that Canada labeled it, and it's not good for your health or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but they've basically disconnected it, and you can't bring it into Canada anymore, or at least in larger... Um, that's yeah in larger quantities which we use all the time i think you can only buy it in like the small ones but then it just becomes very expensive for the client so we've gone a different route and so yeah we use the bulletproof and then we've got another one by winkler most people don't know about it no i it's, don't um, okay it's from italy okay and winkler there i can't remember the name of the sealer um right now but this sealer actually creates a almost like a film and actually waterproofs the tile and the grout so it's a, so it more of a coating like a yeah but it penetrates okay. and then it coats over the tile and the grout and it's to help 
um, it's kind of like how WD-40 and WD actually stands for water displacement. Displacement. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. And um, most people use it for an exterior application. We'll apply that and then water will not go inside. So a lot of tile setters and clients have issues with natural stone. So when we saw Omid, uh, Omid sorry, and he's installing some marble mosaics. Some, it's slate. Yeah, some yeah. slate, some thassos marble. And when you have it in a wet area, if water gets in to the grout and then the tile saturates it, it discolors it. Picture framing. Exactly. You'll see it. So when you use the sealer, it'll it'll stop that from happening because it'll make sure a hundred percent that there's no water that can get in through the through the system. Mm -hmm. Right. So, is it yeah, solvent based? This Winkler stuff? No, it's a water based. So water based. I guess that's the whole where like Canada, I guess, yeah. is getting stricter that way, where they prefer water-based products over the solvent base but i think us as professionals feel the solvent-based products are far better than the latex acrylic or whatever water-based i prefer solid i mean the the solvent-based i'm a little bit old school that way you know if it doesn't stink it doesn't work yeah kind of thing. yeah i'm the same way too you always ask at the supplier you're going how, how bad does it smell you yeah. know what i mean okay i'll take that one over that one and it's just how it is. Yeah, and I'm, I don't know if it's also, I think it's, it might be a hybrid product. So it does definitely have a bit of an odor to it, for sure. It's very strong. So with the backward boards or the base, you're starting with everything. What's your go-to? What do you like the best and the reasons why you're liking that one? Every application, it depends. Okay, good question. Yes. Yeah, good point. So we don't generally stick to one product by one manufacturer because... Mm -hmm. Not every job's the same. You know, is it a house? Is it a condo? Is it mosaic? Is it stone? Is it large format? You know, there's just so many different factors. And then so we'll use the specific product given the what we're installing. So I can give you some examples. So the biggest thing I've noted about the form board with installers is they kind of come up with their own method of installing the foam board or how to waterproof the foam board. So for example, we'll do something that's very common these days is like a white subway ceramic tile, right? A lot of people, oh, we're gonna do subway tile. It's four very, by eight, three by six. You with, got it, yeah. yeah. Four by 16 even. Yeah, a little um, more linear looking Yeah, a little ones. bit more linear look. Yeah. A lot of people do that in tub surrounds, showers. It's a very typical, inexpensive uh, tile gives it a good little classic look right so it's very very popular so if we were to go through the string of foam boards that i know of that's out there right there's a go board then there's the curdy then there's a hydro block weedy prova board and the laticrete's hydro band board when you're doing like the subway tile, the go board and the curdy are very similar and they flex. So when you have a 16 on center and you go and you push, there's a lot of flex. So we tend to not use those boards if it's the small, if it's the smaller tile. So if you're using a tile, what size and smaller would you not recommend using a foam board? 
if you're smaller than what a 16 inch long tile so it depends which foam board so the curdy and the gold board i wouldn't do anything if the tiles 12 by 24 are bigger that's okay but smaller question but smaller maybe a 12 by 12 but no one installs 12 by 12s nobody's so. doing that is it your decision or is it the builder's decision or is it the designer's decision on what gets placed as your base me so over the years it's not the way here huh here a lot of tile setters will show up on site and it's already been installed oh really yeah, yeah. no it's it's me and the reason why it's me and the reason why we do it this way is because it doesn't matter who it is Ardex, Schluter, Laticrete, Mapay, um, you've got Tech, uh, who else is there? Flextile. Ultimately, who is responsible for the job? Is the guy the who install. installed it. Yeah, the installer. So the installer needs to know and do his research and pick the product associated for the job that he knows he or she knows that it's going to be something that's going to be warranted. So we do at least two years. Some guys is um, just their two mirrors, right? So <laughs> <laughs> as long as they can see the job in their rear view mirror or their side mirror, yeah. the warranty is good once it's Tail, out of their tail view light, the mirror, mirrors, yeah. tail light, yeah. whatever, yeah. Um, in and out. So, yeah, so we, we try to do that. Sometimes if it goes beyond that, depending on what had happened, you know, if it's seven years down the road, right? We'll still honor if it's something that was like our fault. Most of the times when we go back to do some kind of repair, it's homeowner negligence. An accident of some sort, something happened. Yeah, but normally it's been ne neglected, right? So a lot of people think that since it's new, you have no maintenance. Indestructible. Yeah. It's perfect. Like, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's not. It's new. Uh, what do you mean I have to clean it? <laughs> a lot of homeowners don't realize it you're supposed to rinse down the shower bath area every time you have a shower bath. It's it, just... Yeah. yeah like, well, it, it gets washed every time I use it. You have to there's rinse off all the soap off. scum and the soap. And, the, and by the way, there's some harsh detergents in those soaps. And that's the reason yeah. why and stuff. So it starts to eat away at certain things. Well, look at the ocean and what it does and how it forms the rock. Yeah. Over right? time. Over time. So you think of that as the shower the water's hitting the tile in the grout over time, what's going to happen? Almost in the same pattern over and over. If it's a couple or if it's an individual single person living in the same area, you go in, it's the same rhythmic action. So the water is probably hitting the same spot over and over. That's right. And then You're they probably start the questioning, you, how come this grout here is kind of deteriorating how come this cock in here is kind of deteriorating but not over here on yeah. the other side where yeah. the water never hits it exactly so yeah, yeah you're right there's 100 percent maintenance attached to every job that's there yeah especially in a functioning part of a renovation well especially in a in the tile world which 90 percent of it's in a bathroom yeah right um and you're using the bathroom constantly every day hopefully uh yeah. <laughs> twice a day it's for some that work out yeah <laughs> so it's just like there's a lot of usage there 
Yeah. And then, you know, you have to think of it as investment or even like your car. You know, do you go without weeks or months or even years without cleaning your car? Drives me crazy. Right. So it's the same idea. Right. But we, we get the phone calls like, oh, I thought this grout was, you know, impervable. And it's like, well, yeah, to a certain degree, but you have to maintain, you know, it does it, is it still repelling the water, right? You have to clean and reseal, so on and so forth. So we do a lot of maintenance stuff too, or maintenance slash repair, where, you know, some guy's done a job a year ago and things are already starting falling apart and we have to think of a creative way to to make um make it work or fix or band-aid we give the client the different options of the methods that what we can do depending on their budget depending on what is it that they want for the outcome right and how long how much longer they're going to stay there for I'm not going to knock the immigrants because I'm an immigrant myself. But why is it that I'll come across clients and jobs that they've done recently that have failed recently? Because for whatever reason, I always find out that it's an immigrant that didn't understand the lip of a tub is supposed to go behind the tile, but the actual backer board is supposed to go on top of that almost flush so then your tile can go in front of that lip that lip is not supposed to be exposed and that's where your tile starts and then you start explaining to the homeowner that it's not the caulking or it's not a leak in the plumbing it's literally there was no overlap you still have to have some sense regarding i guess roofing mother nature and overlap in the way it works that way but i've always found those jobs have been done by immigrants that don't understand how the tub acrylics or even cast irons are designed, that that's how that layering process goes. So then it guarantees that if water hits it, it doesn't come up behind it and then goes past the acrylic lip and then it starts to create. And because then that'll constantly bring water behind and over time you'll build up water and then it'll get through the drywall, it'll get through insulation and then it'll get through the ceiling. All of a sudden you got a leak in the ceiling. Their first thought is the plumbing's leaking. Somehow the plumbing has to be leaking. Then you kind of educate them on that. Where's the disconnect, I guess, with the, you just don't know? There's um, two reasons. One, they don't know. They just don't know. And the second is they think they can do the same thing that they do back home here. Right? So there's several different methods that are are done and that some precautions that you have to take here that's going to be different than you know what they would do in Mexico for example when you know you do a shower and all the walls are concrete or brick right versus you've got a wood frame structure with a gypsum based backer board right so there's certain things that you have to be more precautious in and what the method you have to take. And a lot of the times it's just these guys are not uneducated. Not necessarily they just want to do it any way. They just don't know. And then furthermore, they don't know how to gather that information. That's true. Right? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I learned was through experience. 
and then the pointers were given to me by other tile installers, such as my father, my brother also tiled, and other tile setters that I worked along with, right? So you're kind of sharing information, kind of like what we're doing here. So, Wouldn't it be interesting if all the sales reps, and I mean, everybody has their loyalty, and they use, like you said, different products for different applications. If you're, I think, an educated tile setter, stone setter, installer, wouldn't it be better if all the salespeople, because they all know each other, like these these guys are all jokers, like and girls, they're all jokers when they go to trade shows. They all rub elbows and go, "Hey, what's going on on your side of the fence or whatever." Yeah. Wouldn't it be better if they all actually took the effort to go and speak to guys, tradespeople on site, not to sell their products, but to sell the education? That would actually be contributing to the industry instead of being competitive in the industry. Like I think that a salesperson going in and going, here's a new way to layer it. Here's a new way to do a niche. Here's a new way to do a corner. Here's a new idea that we're thinking about, a new idea for a tray, for a, a slope, all this other stuff. And just educate. I think that's going to resonate a lot further with that tradespeople, a tradesperson who's hungry for mm -hmm. new knowledge than going in there and going, here, here's a hat, here's a shirt, here's a pencil, here's a bucket, our logo's on everything, and by the way, buy our product. I, that doesn't resonate with me. Like, I'd rather someone... I know what you're saying. You know what I'm talking like, about. Because, uh, like, the only two guys that I know that do somewhat what you're talking about, you know, Schluter pushes it pretty hard. Yes, they right? do. And Laddercrete will do some, some, yes, they some do. functions, right? Yeah. I don't know anybody else who do it. Uh, sometimes Ardex does some things, like, at ProSol, you know, barbecue and show you a couple little things. But I don't know anyone that does like almost like a school format kind of like where you would get your red seal and even then if i don't know too many guys who are in the tile industry that actually went to school for it doesn't really exist i know tt mac is trying to do something like that uh, a certification i know yeah. in the states they do i know back west you can you can do a course and you can actually get like a red seal okay but it's like you're in school i think only for about a month and then you have to go on the field and then for a year and then you come back and you do work uh, you know you do again for a for a month and then work and then a month and then work and then basically a total of four months over uh, of school over a four-year period right to get your red seal now my understanding a lot of the the background that they go through is a lot of the theory, yeah. the theoretical, like, you know, what is marble? You know, what is a travertine? Mm -hmm. Like, what compose, what kind of like chemistry that composes these different materials, the porcelain, the ceramic, thin set, and so on. And so it's a lot of theory, but not a whole lot of day-to-day um, -day practical. practical you know, how do you do this when you encounter that? How do you do this when this happens, right? I remember Todd from TT Mac telling me something that I thought was really interesting, how the manufacturer of products, for lack of a better statement, don't care how it's installed. They care about their product and they develop a product and they'll get the product out to market but it's you, the installer, that has to figure out how to install that product. There's they, a lot of that. Yeah, they don't educate you on how to install. They just develop that product. Mm -hmm. So that's how I know that that was the nightmare when porcelain slabs were coming into North America and they were 
not necessarily relatively big in Europe. They were first big in China. Then they became big in Europe. Then they became big in North America. But along that whole path, there was issues with it. Well, there's, there's no education through it, right? Yeah. That's the disconnect there, which I fault the manufacturer because they just look at it like, okay, sure, the market is complaining about natural stones. I'm European, so I love deficiencies in natural stones. I find them character. I find them gorgeous and I can look at them and a discoloration or a little crack or a little fissure or something like that, that's character to me. That's personality from Mother Nature's stone, right? Yeah. But the general consumer out there thinks that's a blemish and I don't want it, right? And so I want a perfect looking image of a natural stone, but I want it in a porcelain slab. But now you create these other problems with it because porcelain is basically glass. Mm-hmm. Cutting and fabricating and installing it, it becomes a challenge at that point. And then if you chip it or fail or, or the proper procedure is not perfect, it's on you again, back to the beginning of this talk where we were talking about that. It's always on the installer the final result yeah always even when you get um some manufacturers gave even a list of like okay this is what you should do you know uh, kind of like a recipe right yeah you follow the recipe something fails you go back to that rep hey man i followed the recipe okay let's dissect it you know you take it apart and you you know you see all the layers that you actually did because the first thing they're like oh well you did something wrong well I followed the orders that you asked me to, to make sure we warranty this product. And generally, it's uh, for us back West Coast is um, is exterior. We have a lot of problems with exterior application and adhering because of the whole rainforest rain. Moisture. So only 2% of the whole world has the same type of climate that we do. So it's a rainforest that freezes and thaws sometimes on the same day, right? <laughs> so we have a lot of precipitation and there's can be a lot of heat. So a south-facing deck, they've picked black tile, for example. Wow. You know, that tile can get 50, 60 degrees in the summer, right? And then cool down at night and be 15 degrees and then get rained on. Like, you create it's a shock. huge, yes, exactly. It's a yeah. huge shock. Um, and a transfer of energy and things are expanding and contraction at a very high rate in a short period of time, right? And people have to understand that even the concrete and the thin set and the tile or the stone, they all move differently, differently yeah. right? And how they react to the heat, to the moisture, right? So much research that you have to do so that the product and the method is basically have to be, in the end, warranted by you. Because I've had cases where we've followed exactly what the manufacturer asked us to do. It failed a year or two later. We had to cover it. You know, oh, we'll give you a few bags of thin set. Like, what kind of warranty that, that, is that? That's not a warranty. I mean, it costs I know. us over $5,000 to fix, you know, the job. And you're going to throw me you know, a hundred dollars worth of thin set. You know, I remember early for coming out in, in the early days when I was doing it and clients were asking, and I was also asking for it too, darker colored grouts and darker things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you would mix up a batch. Black is supposed to look like black. You know what I mean? And it doesn't, you know, it, you mix it up and you're like, it kind of looks black. 
you hope it's like paint. It's going to get darker when it dries, but it's gets lighter. It doesn't. It gets lighter, right? So then you do it, and then you send pictures, and you send it to the rep, and the rep goes, well, you did something wrong. Okay, fine, whatever. I'll scrape it out. I'll do another batch, and I'll literally go to the cupboard in the kitchen, and I'll take out my measuring cup, and I'll take exactly to the pinpoint of how much water is supposed to be in there, and I'll mix it up, and I get the same results. So what did I do wrong this time? And I know that the earlier days, Black wasn't true. They didn't. They didn't perfect that. And only certain. Black's, I know Latticrete. Black's a tough one. Yeah, black's a tough one. But Latticrete at the time had some of the better blacks out there, like mm-hmm. truer blacks. Yeah. But it always it always became a conversation with the climber going. It's not exactly perfect black, right? And then you got to kind of try to sell the client that it's good enough black, right? And then all of a sudden, ah, it's blackish, right? Like Tiger I, Woods. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of. They've gotten better. The products have gotten better. How strict are these, I guess, scientific, the way they design these products? Like, I I don't know anybody these days that's actually using a measuring cup and putting the exact same amount of water that they're saying you're supposed to put. You do it by touch. You do it by feel. You mix it up and you get that slack, right? Do we have to adhere to those exact guidelines that every manufacturer is recommending? I think when it comes to darker colors, like we just finished a project on Bowen Island and it was one by one black porcelain mosaics, one inch by one inch. And it was the whole bathroom. So it's a large bathroom floor, curbless shower, the shower walls, it was a pretty big shower and it had like a column where the plumbing was and then it wrapped around behind and there was a tub behind that so everything kind of wrapped so there was a lot of black and there was a little bit of black wainscoting as well that went up three feet up the wall we went through i think six or seven bags of 25 pounds each um so it was quite a lot of grout i think it was about 150 pounds in total or 175 pounds of grout, grout, which is very uncommon these days because the grout joints are always so small and the tiles are so big, right? The 10 pound of grout can last you three, four different jobs, Jobs. right? And you're normally throwing away most of your, most of it. Otherwise it would last you six, seven, eight jobs, right? Yeah. In that context, what we do is we actually, with a darker color, we, we put it into a dry bucket. We actually mix the contents dry first. They say over time and during shipment, basically the polymers and stuff like that move and shift in the oh, dye. I didn't and they can know settle that. at the bottom. Really? Right? Yeah. So we dump the bucket, we mix everything dry, and then we have a ratio. So for example, if it turns out to be three or five cups doesn't matter how big the cup is. You're, you scoop five cups of dry powder and it's to one cup of water. So it's the five to one ratio. So you, you, you scoop five cups into a, a bucket, you put the one cup of water and you mix, mix it, it up. you wait, you mix it again, then you grout. So if we have to go back and do a touch up or something like the plumber forgot to put the wall union so we finished all the job, and then he had forgot to put the wall union. So they had to open up the wall. Drill the hole? Couldn't just all the way? No, he couldn't drill the hole because it was the column, like I said. Yeah. And I thought, I said, well, why don't you try doing it from the backside? 
And no, they had to do it from inside the shower. The, we opened up the wall. He installed the wall union. Then we had to put it all back together again. So it's not a problem. We've got the grout. We know the ratio. We mix it again, and then it'll be perfect. It'll look exactly the same. In theory, yes. Now, it always looks a little bit different, only because the humidity level could be different at the time and how you washed it. So, But it looks a lot better than if you just did everything by eye, right? So it becomes very, very close to being perfect, but it's never 100% because it's it's not done at the same time as when you've done it the original, right? It's just there's few other little, like I said, the temperature, you know, how, you know, the drywaller's got a fan running in the other room and there's wind being created. Time of year, time, season. Uh, mm. Yeah, so there's all these different little factors. So, you know, you get it to about 95% to what it used to look like other than it could be like, 60%. Is it true that every manufacturer's products, whether it's an adhesive product to install the tile or a finishing product like a grout line, they all have shelf lives? They say they do, yeah. They yeah. have some kind of shelf life. So you have a shelf life prior to opening it, the product. Yeah. And you have a shelf life when you open it. So you have to be very careful. Now, if you store it in a dry climatized place depending on what it is generally you can go beyond that shelf time but if it's been sitting in the back of your truck and it's gone through from the summer into the winter <laughs> and now you're back in spring you're like yeah. oh i've still got some of this growth let's left use over. this let's use this i would be a little bit more precautious right because then it's in if you didn't tape it up well enough if it's like a bag of grout or something you don't want the humidity to get inside and um, basically start creating little chunkies and hard rocks and yep. yeah and then you're installing this beautiful polished marble and then you're spreading grout and you're scratching it with these little rocks, right? Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Only speaking it? from experience. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, why would you I guess take the chance of you know doing an amazing job clients spent some serious money on tile to save twenty dollars worth of growth exactly when just go to the done. shop and pick it up brand new shelf and that's it do it yep. done you have to be very careful in how the products that we use on a daily basis weekly monthly basis and how it's stored and like you said sometimes it's just better just to get a new bag and and just go new, right? But you like, get a lot of trades people that are constantly using the same products over and over and over, right? So then they figure, well, here's a bag from 1972. Let's use this. You know, it's been in the truck for a long time. Let's use it. No, you, you shouldn't. You should yeah. just, at some point, you should look at it. It's a, I guess it's the same thing with um, caulking tubes and here yeah, in silicone, Canada. Uh, not yeah. too many people know or they see, but there's an expiry date yeah. on the silicone. There, and there's a reason why other than... Uh, Oh, I don't know. I never really asked them that. You think the manufacturers do it? It's kind of like the airports. Eh? I can't stand that deodorant cans are 107 grams and you're only allowed to carry on 100 grams. The deodorant companies did that on purpose because of the amount of volume that gets thrown out at that point of checking in. On, and then you have to go and buy another one. You have to go buy another one. Exactly. So it's a numbers game. So I'm wondering 
I'm not I'm not accusing the manufacturers of tile products or insulation products out there. I, I think it's kind of like yogurt, right? You go and buy yogurt and it says it's going to, you know, last you two, two weeks and then a month and a half goes by and you, you know, smell the yogurt. You're like, it smells perfectly fine. <laughs> and then you chase it and you're like, it still tastes good. <laughs> so if you've got some expired silicone, but it's been sitting in your truck and it froze at some point, then it's yeah, the weather scenario. It. Yeah, it's the weather right. scenario. Is it worth the failure, the potential failure? Not for a five dollar. It's not thing worth it. Silicone. It's not worth it at that or point. Just just go get. Yeah, just go and get a one. brand new one. That's it. It's done. Yeah. Or be more organized. That's all. That's all. Right. Let's get into um, let's get into beds. Let's get into. Are people still using sure. rubber? Do you want to finish up on the foam board? Oh no no. Okay, what else you want to chat about the oh, foam board? The, yeah, the foam board. So I was telling you about the the smaller format. So you have to be very cautious about the, the size of the tile, right? So depending on what kind of uh, foam board you want to use, you want to look at the, the size of the tile, right? So a more appropriated um, board that I would use for a smaller format tile would be uh, Weedy, Prova, Hydroband, or the Hydro Block. The reason why it's way more rigid over the 16-inch span of of construction now if if there's guys out there that are building it on 24 inch on center then then you got to even skip out the hydroband board and stick to the ones that have the fiberglass reinforced with um it has like a layer of concrete basically or light topping which is the weedy hydroband i mean sorry hydro block and the prova board so a lot of these guys they put up this board and they're like okay and then we caulk it because um, those ones are all used with the urethane. So the only one that's not is the Curdy board. Mm -hmm. They like, because they don't have, well, they have the Curdy fix, fix, but they, they prefer to have the their banding. application is to have the, the weedy, uh, the banding, the banding. And I, I know why they want the banding, the, why the banding, because the banding's idiot proof. Yeah. Not calling anyone idiots out there. Well, you don't know how dry the framing is. You don't know if the house is finalized. It's settlement, like it's movement. So if you've got one board on one side and another board on an adjacent side, and you've got timber that's going to expand when it dries, you're going to get that opening in the corner. The band is a two-inch minimum, whatever overlap. If it does expand, it's still, it still flex with it. Yeah, there, there's that, but mostly because a lot of guys out there that are using the board... They're using other methods along with the board that isn't approved, right? So when you're installing the foam board that has the urethane application, which is everything except the Schluter, so the Go board, Hydroband, Hydroblock, Weedy and Prova, you use the urethane. So a lot of the guys don't realize you actually have to apply the urethane first, right? So you do like a 3 8 bead. And then you put your push board it. on and yeah. you push against it. So you also can't have your cut too big or too small, right? Because then you can't get that connect. And then after you get the excess that squeezes out, then you have to do another coat on top. So basically making sure that it's 100%. So a lot of guys, they board everything and then they'll caulk over it. Now There's a void there though. Well, Potential. the thing is then... You're, you're relying on just the topical caulking, 
right? The urethane and not it actually binding together. Cause like if you bind the foam board together and then put another coat, when you go to take that off for a repair or something, it's, they're stuck they're together. Stuck, yeah. They're stuck together really good. They're, they're, they're binded together. So for those guys that are doing the foam board out there, they just got to make sure, you know, watch a YouTube video if you need to, if you don't like reading instructions, right? <laughs> or whenever you go to do the seams, you know, throw your 3-8 speed, horizontal, vertical, before applying any board up against another board. So basically think of it as glue, right? So you put your bead, stick your boards together, put your other bead on top and then you're, then you're solid. And then, obviously all your, yeah. and then all your punctures, right? So everywhere you've put a hole in it, you want to cover it up, right? So. I, I learned something from Julie Shachuk who does the accessible wellness kind of building. And she, she said something about uh, because of aging in place. So she had blocking in certain spots where you assume you're going to put a grab handle for the elderly and, and, and medicinal reasons, right? And, uh, and then all of a sudden I said to her, well, wouldn't it just make more sense? Most showers, I guess, so to speak, are four feet by eight feet or whatever. You put a whole sheet of plywood. And I started thinking, I think in the future doing projects, I'm going to somehow recess the framing and literally add a sheet of three-quarter ply and then add my foam board on top of that. Because it gives me the freedom for any homeowner who's taking that on to put a grab bar anywhere they want. They don't have to worry about it. They don't have to look for a 16-ounce center. And that would help with, I guess, the foam board and everything like that, too, as well. So it's going to be that much more rigid if you use something small, tiny, whatever, a quarter-inch by three-inch glass mosaics. It's just going to be that much more stable. That's for sure. I yeah, mean, other. you're talking an extra cost of what, a hundred dollars a sheet, so to speak, times two, maybe times three. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have to go as far as three quarter inch, but it'd be nice, five eighths. Yeah, five eighths. To get least. it in there. Yeah. Um, or you can put it in between where we've done before is uh, when we have to use like quarter inch foam board when we're trying to flush the tile up and have kind of like a drywall flush transition yeah, where, yeah. It, where the drywall, the paint finish is the same, the, the same level of the tile finish, right? Tile surface, yeah. So we will put backing in between the studs, right? And then you put your three quarter or five eighths plywood all in between the cavities and then you glue and screw the quarter inch board. And then now you have that rigidity with the, with the plywood in between the studs and you can push all you want because it ain't going to move. No. Right. So are you noticing that? Cause I'm noticing this and I'm not blaming poor frame framers, but I will blame poor framers. A lot more towel setters and towel installers are wet bonding their products instead of screwing them in because the framing is not plumb and they need to try to get as true as possible with that base system. So it just makes more sense to do a wet bond application and then uh, on all the studs and then adhere your foam board or whatever board you're using and let it dry and then come back and start tiling at that point. Yeah. You seeing that? You seeing a lot of that now? Again, on the higher end jobs, we, we or the contractor gets the carpenter to shim plane out the wet areas or wherever there's going to be tile. Wow, nice. So before we put the backer board, we're shimming, we're planing the studs so that when we apply our backer board, we're plumb, we're flat, we're happy. 
this will also save a lot of time and money for the clients because if you do it after the fact, right, and then you're having to float the walls out to making it plumb if it needs to be, right, or at least flat because you've got a, you know, half-inch hump in the middle of your wall. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work when you're having to screed all your walls with thinset first and then you tile. Sometimes the prep being becomes more expensive than the tile installation yep. because there's just so much prep involved. Mostly it's because of carelessness of the trade before. Yeah, 100%. Now with the wood being the way it is these days, it seems like the quality is getting worse and worse as well. You know, things are getting more expensive and the quality is going downhill. You know, the framer can only work with so much that, you know, he or she is working with. But for the most part, I find that most of it is just because just pure intelligence. Like yeah, just, just laziness, just yeah, don't care laziness, about it. laziness, and then it compounds when the drywaller shows up, right? He's like, ah, whatever. It's, it's know, done. i got to put my board up. Yeah. Right? And then they put their board, and then we go to, you know, Curdy or Hydroband, the walls with a sheet membrane, and then we do that, and then we, we put a flat or a straight edge on the wall and go, oh, my goodness, there's a hump in this thing, right? <laughs> now, we try to see if we can, not every time it, it goes that way, but before we start doing anything, it's always ideal to take a look at the wall before because mainly in the wet areas, you don't um, mud and tape the showers. So this gives you an opportunity to unscrew the board. And then take Yeah, and then taking a look. Sometimes it's like, a nail like when it's a renovation or something like that so the person who's done the demo and then compounds no one had taken it out no one and then drywaller puts it on top and then you find out there's like a nail or something making it protrude yeah. out or some kind of little blemish in the two by four which if you just hit it with a hammer it would have you know solved the problem but nobody thought to just take a peek no, I know. It's the previous trade, and it's just kind of garbage at that point. Let's get into the, the beds. Bed. Let's get into, uh, I guess, you're more of a dry pack, that old school. We, we are. Yeah. And, and the reason why is um, when Schluter first kind of came out with the foam shower pans, it was a great concept. I think it still is a good concept, but it's not concrete. I had, and sometimes we don't get to meet the clients uh, during the process. And um, I had installed a shower pan in a condo for a client through a contractor, but I hadn't seen the client or had met them before. And if you look actually in literature of Schluter's foam pans, it says you cannot use tile less than two foot i mean sorry two, two inch, inch by, by two inch. inch but it's the same that also applies to the ditra membrane, membrane whether it's the ditra heat or Correct. the ditra regular ditra or even ditra xl yep and the reason i was told that that's the case is because of the pound per square inch based on commercial application so when rolling around a dolly of food let's say prepper restaurant yeah. kind of stuff that pinpoint of wheel weight to ratio on a square inch 
is greater and that's the reason why you need a two inch by two inch minimum because you don't have that weight displacement yeah but in a residential and that was my argument i just said listen i don't do commercial you do commercial but i don't do commercial so the odds of my client rolling around a little trolley that's got that much weight in their bathroom is not applicable here but if you do that manny if you use something that's smaller than two inch by two inch then you're avoiding the warranty and i go i get it yeah i understand i'll become a rental cowboy yeah Yeah. sure (laughs) so we so i ended up using a like it's what it was like a one inch by one inch right i hadn't seen on the foam tray on the foam tray okay right the the client was a fairly large client so they they weighed quite a lot so when they went to go use the shower and they stepped in it it actually dented really it actually made concave spots in the foam pan. Now, since then, that was about 14 years ago. Since so then, that would they have been first generation yeah, trays. Yeah, so they, um, they have kind of improved the foam and the density of the foam since then. But since that happened, and then we had to tear apart half of the shower because now I have to fix this shower pan. I just, I just don't risk it. You just dry pack it. I just dry pack it. Then doesn't matter. You could have a bull standing there, you know, 600 kilo bull with his hooves. (laughs) Are you doing the dry pack with the rubber membrane or are you doing the dry pack with a Schluter tray drain assembly? So we use a lot of the Schluter drains. You know, I, I was able to get a, a sneak peek when they were coming out with the curdy line drains. Yeah, the linears. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was really cool. I was pretty excited about it. Um, it was getting more and more common. Um, we used to make our own linear drains in the context where we would build the pan and drop it lower than the floor so that it could come across flush and then it creates like a, a trough yep. and then you tiled the trough and then you would get a grate yep. made to go from wall to wall. So there was a lot more, a lot more time put and involved a lot more trades. Cause then you had to, you know, finish the tile and then you had to measure and you had to get it to, you know, a stainless steel, you know, that does plasma or you're water jetting, right? Then you're custom manufacturing it. Then you've, then you've got to approve CAD drawings and the finish of it. Wow. And so on and so forth. Uh, looked really great, but that's, that's what you had back then. If you wanted a linear drain, you had to. It was either, I guess, even Quick Drain. Quick Drain USA would have been one of the first manufacturers. That I never used. Yeah, but then it also got into Infinity. But I just started looking at some of the price points, and I was like, "You guys are out to lunch." I think they were just looking at the box. Yeah, yeah. Back then. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so you're just just taking advantage of it, right? That's someone wants a linear drain. They're gonna pay for that linear drain. Yeah. So we used, we used most of the because. Schluter's done a really, really good job with marketing. Yeah. Right? They put a, you know, millions and millions of dollars into marketing, you know, paying Mike Holmes to, you know, say wonderful things about their product, <laughs> right? Putting his little label on it. They've done a great job uh, with the marketing. They've made it uh, plug and play. They've done a great job with their drains. So 
I would say about 95% of all of our drains are, are from Schluter, and it's just because of the ease. Uh, there's so many different options now and colors and shades and sizes, and you just... Yeah, they finally got black on the market. Yeah, and then like the drains, uh, any new drain that's being installed today in, in probably across Canada, I would say probably 95% of them, if it's a tiled shower pan, it's going to be a Schluter drain. It's interesting. That job that we passed by Omeeds there, they decided to go back to traditional. So they didn't want any linear drains. They wanted all traditional square drains, mostly in the center of the shower design. And that's a specifically requested from the client. They didn't want, because it's more of a traditional looking home, the way the moldings are, the, the way the house is designed. Everything. But there was linear drains there. There was, I think, maybe just one. One of them? Yeah, okay. but the majority of the showers were all square, centered, mm. or off-centered drains. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's, oh. it's interesting to see a client request that in today's day when you just automatically. But I, 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 I do agree with you is that the linear drain almost always speaks more contemporary, modern. And if your tile design is not that way, it might stick out a little bit. It won't really fit the design. Yeah, myself personally, I'm not a big fan of the linear drain. I just, with the linear drain, depending on where it's located, sometimes there's more surface it has to cover before it gets into the drain. Yeah. So you've got, you're dirtying more of the surface area of the shower pan to, to accept the linear drain. Now, it has its place, I think, for mm -hmm. either all different types of applications but yeah definitely if it's more traditional the four inch square or even round six we, inch round i've used once before yeah we do uh like a four inch round kohler which is funny you can actually slip the kohler's drain assembly into the schluter and so we've We've adapted really? doing the Kohler's. I can show you some pictures after. So their grates, finish great fits into the drain assembly. Really? Yeah, I didn't know cool. that. I wonder if that's. I don't think it was on purpose. Okay. I think it was definitely a fluke. It fits. Yeah. And it doesn't um, compromise the drain assembly or the application and the waterproofing. But it looks really cool because then you've got this beautiful round Kohler, you know, brass or bronze or chrome round drain where you don't see as often anymore because of the Schluter, you know, four inch square. I do like the idea of not seeing the drain. Like I kind of I, I, I skew towards more of the linear or the tileable square drain and not seeing the drain, uh, the grate itself, because I think uh, jewelry-wise, when you're talking about a shower, you know, the fixtures or the head or whatever. But I also am a fan of a digital application for uh, a shower valve, right? So it's like you don't have all the volume controls and the thermostatic and all this other stuff. You kind of simplify it. So then your attention goes right to your overhead shower unit, your arm shower unit, your hand shower unit, mm -hmm. and that's what you look at. And I remember one time I was thinking about doing a, a round, so to speak, round shower. Yep. And I thought, I didn't want to fight a drain. I wanted to actually just put a drain in the center, but I wanted to put an oversized piece of stone over the whole thing and just have... We've done that. You've done where it's basically a channel all the way around, yep. and so when you stand on it, the water is just cascading to that. That's right. But how? Okay, so how big did you make that circle? So we didn't do it 
as a circle, we did a, I think it was a rectangular shower. So basically there was one big piece of stone that was sloping slightly. So we basically tiled underneath this, this, this piece of stone. So basically you do like a two by two tile. Yeah. Right. And you are basically covering it by a piece of stone. Yeah. So it's on some pedestals. Yeah. And then you have like a kind of an infinity edge around and leave, let's say, seven mil, eight mil um, quarter inch for those who like Imperial. Um, <laughs> North and, America. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then you go around and that way you just give it a little bit of a slope and all it looks like is just a piece of stone in the shower pan. So how do you lift it? to get to the drain to clear it out from all the hair that builds up over time. That's the beauty part. <laughs> what? How, okay, that's the secret? <laughs> no, that's not the secret. So sometimes design and function and practical doesn't mix, right? Mm -hmm. So generally something like that. So we'd give the client a suction cup and to you, have to, you have to lift it up. Right. So there was one client. It's not, it's not, would, it's not light. In. You know what I mean? No, no, no. no. So and the generally risk. it'd be like six months. You'd come in, lift it up for them, get it cleaned and then drop it back down. And discover right? all so, the nastiness underneath. Yeah. There. Yeah. I always find that there's always some kind of conflict between design and function, function and cost and trying to find that happy median you know, these architects and designer come up with these really cool ideas, but the client wants it to be more practical. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, architect or clients pushing hard. Oh, no, we need to do it like this and that and the other thing. And the client's like, how am I supposed to clean that? Yeah. Oh, no, it's okay. It's no problem. You know, someone can come and clean it for But you. as installers, like, you, you know, should have an answer for that. Yeah, there's always there's always a way of doing it. Generally, I always lead towards the client and ask them how they use the product, right? Yeah. So what the product being what we are doing for them, depending on the, the method and how they're using the product that we're installing, we need to compensate for the design. Sometimes there's got to be some kind of compromise. And that way we kind of can try to meet in the middle sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, we could do something like that, but maybe we'll do a custom drain so there's no, you know, quarter-inch reveal around the whole thing. It's yeah. just around the one side that where, like, a drain would be. And then yeah. all you have to lift up is the drain assembly. It's going to be a lot lighter. You still get kind of the look, but then you're going to have very it's gonna be very specific where the drain is right there is a drain that we've used several times it hasn't been specced lately mainly because we haven't been able to get it um, very easily but it's actually really neat so it it's made out of ABS okay and it's a one-size-fits-all so basically it has from what I can remember. Yeah, so it's five feet long, so it's 60 inches long. Okay. And then it has two six-inch wings. Okay. So it makes it a total of six feet long, so you can do 72 inches. But you can also make it as small as, I think, about 18 inches. Really? Roughly. So 
it's uh, since it's made out of ABS, you you take a skill saw or your wet saw, you cut it to the size, then you glue everything together, right? With, with ABS, ABS glue, glue okay. and screws and some urethane. You have to get a little creative, right? That's okay. how it gets put together. But then it doesn't matter what size the shower is, where the drain location is. You can always make that drain work, right? The adjustments. The adjustments, right? And then it basically has this quarter inch where the, all the water goes into through the channel and then it has a two two inch by four inch little uh, tile grate let's say that you you push and it flips up and then that way you can get access to where the actual drain is connected to the drain assembly this way you have access of cleaning the whole channel so you have, you can get a special brush that you can swing and then it cleans the inside of the channel of oh, the drain okay. and the drain itself, because if it ever gets clogged, you need to get access to the drain. Yeah. Right? These drains are really cool. I haven't seen much of them though. Not too many people do who's it. The, who's and the, the brand that makes why, them? It's uh, Ebby. Ebby, okay. Yeah, I-B-B-E, I think it is. And, okay. and I know why it wasn't too popular. And the reason why it's not too popular is because it puts all the responsibility in the, the um, installer. tile installer or no, the, would the, that it would be the tile installer. So it's even though technically you're gluing, um, it, it doesn't fall on the plumber, it falls on the tile installer. It falls on the tile installer, just like how generally now these days the tile installer is installing the heat wires. Right? Well, legally speaking, they're not supposed to be, right? Legally speaking, my understanding is that they cannot connect the wires to the thermostat. Okay. But they can install the wires, but they cannot connect the wires to the box. But I thought it was the electrician that has to do the testing before, during, and after install of the cable I guess resistance. that depends on each municipality. That's what I was Gen told here in ESA in Ontario. That yeah, so we normally do the install, we do the testing, we mark everything down. Once the testing's done and we pass the buck, as it were, um, if it fails, generally it's an electric, uh, like a electrical problem. Yeah. So a big one is miscommunication. They told us to get uh, the 241. A 240, yeah. right? But they pulled a 120 connection and now it's not working very well. It becomes a big hassle to have to run a new 240 line. Another big one is the thermostats cop out. I haven't had, I've, I've had a new heat thermostat die on one job, but after years, and I just lucked out that a supplier had a, a replacement because they don't make the new heat harmony anymore, which was mm -hmm. my favorite thermostat because it was a double gang thermostat. Yeah. I think that all the heated flooring thermostats are all eyesores. I think they're all wall acne. I think that they should be designed to incorporate with a Decora screwless plate system. That's what I think. Mm. Right? You don't get those anymore. They don't. They don't make them. New Heat was the only one that was like, like I'm looking at that right there on the wall. Like, why can't that be a, a Decora shape so they could be in a double with gang? With a little string, yeah. Yeah, like I just, I, that's just me, aesthetically speaking. But I, I guess. I think I would agree. I never thought of it that way. It's been a while since I've seen a Harmony. But um, since we installed 
hundreds of kits every year. We go through hundreds of thermostats. Yeah. And there's always, there's probably three, four, five that cop out every year. Really? They just install it and it doesn't work. Like, are we talking about shooters or are we talking about... Uh, new heat. We normally use the new heat thermostats. Really, the huh? Home, the touchscreen ones. It's kind of like the best bang for their buck for the client. And most people, it's like Kleenex. They're like, oh, I want new heat, right? So, like, <laughs> we'll, we'll use Dietra heat wires, Laticretes, uh, Strata heat wires, mm-hmm. Pro. Um, those are the kind of the three main ones, um, not in that order, but we we tend to use the thermostat by new heat it's the normally the easiest friendliest basic you know still fully programmable so the clients use uh, tend to like using the new heat thermostats more than the other ones and i find it's the sleekest that is out there they gotta evolve them now i i I know it's a standard you 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 can see the tile and the electrician setting it all up. They'll throw up the four by four box. They'll throw up the two channels for conduit, bring it down. So you run your cable, you run your sensors. And I, I think that all the manufacturers in the electric heat system, because it's such a norm now for clients, they're all requesting it now. And here in Ontario, we're going to start fighting the battles of, of vertical surfaces and using heated cables on a vertical surface, which right? Which we've done. Which I know you've done, and I want to do it because I think it makes sense because if I'm in the shower with a significant other, she's not going to be happy with a cold back, right? So <laughs> just, I don't want to see that thermostat there. i rather, almost like home automation, park those thermostats into a closet area and then we've have it app-enabled, right? Because everybody's on a nap now. Yeah. Even the lighting is all connected. So why can't your heated be connected yeah we've done that it becomes very expensive for the client of course to do like a uh, to run those cables yeah yeah what is it to connect four not connect four um, control control four yeah exactly control four system right and i know new heat um they work together in tangent with with the connect four uh, okay uh, with the um so they got control control so they got they got a little deal okay yeah so like we did an apartment where the client wanted um in-floor heat um, throughout, right? And it doesn't make sense to do it with a boiler system when it's an apartment, so it's all electrical. Yeah. And it's 3,000 square feet of wire, right? Jeez. That's what the customer wanted, and they obviously didn't want to see thermostats everywhere. And you can only do so many systems per every 20 amps uh, yeah. service. You're right? tapped out at 240. I think you're tapped out at 135 square feet or something like that. No, no, it's more than that. Is it more than that? Yeah, you can per, get, per thermostat? Uh, per thermostat, yeah, you can get more than that because it's about 20 amps. Uh, a, you can get as big as almost a 300 square foot, uh, 280 square foot kit. Area. Yeah, you're right. It's 285 for the, the Schluter one, 240 volt. Yeah, two forty volts, and have. then you can get. I think that's about thirteen amps or yeah. something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's about thirteen amps. So then you can squeeze on another kit that's let's say, you know, five amps onto that. So you can get probably about three hundred, and I think it was three hundred and twenty-five, three hundred and fifty that yeah. we could get per thermostat. Yeah. Uh, so we try to cram as much as we can, um, but trying to be on the underside of the uh to make sure that we don't the blow. consumption yeah the consumption right yeah so uh we did the whole 
apartment and then we did a peel and stick and then they did hardwood so they did an engineered hardwood glued down on top of on top of the um on top of the leveler no sorry yeah we, no we did the leveler uh, we did wires leveler peel and stick and then they glued down the engineered hardwood on top and the concept that the client wanted was that they wanted warm feet but they would also use the ac huh yes they wanted to be cool but they they would walk what is it uh, a sweet and savory house or something like that i'd like so they would be pineapple on your pizza what's going on here i understand just that's the way they were i guess of their cultural background or where they came from I've heard of clients leaving the heated floors on in summer months because they actually like the feeling of the floor being warm, barefoot walking around the house or even in your socks. We we recommend it actually a lot for the electric radiant heat, even though when people say, oh, well, I already have radiant heat, right? So with a boiler system um, in their bathrooms, I said, well, your boiler isn't working in the summer, is it? They're like, well, no. It's like, well, then your floor is going to be stone cold. Yeah. Oh. Right, and then we always the, most people opt to getting the the electric, electric radiant for that heat reason huh? for that reason hmm. um, to to keep it nice and warm and toasty. Especially the older generations, you know, they have to get up in the middle of the night and they don't want you know to be stepping on freezing cold tile. It so is kind of nice in the morning when you wake up on a winter. Problems, yeah, in winter morning, you get up and you step onto the bathroom oh, surface. It's, it's pretty sweet. And then you sit on your heated toilet seat. Oh, it's just so nice. Yeah. <laughs> then you don't, then you fall asleep <laughs> right there. Checking your TikTok and Instagram, you pass out. Yeah, you got to come up with like some kind of like uh, an like alert. A little, uh, no, like a little, uh, how they do like a an old ironing cupboard hidden thing like next to the toilet but you like bring it down it's like a little pillow so you could like <laughs> rest your head <laughs> i have larry I, I have yet to i remember when the whole schluter tile edge craze was coming onto the market and i had yet to ever meet and i still have yet to meet a designer who actually likes them i don't know any designers that like tile edge some. yeah I never they hated them and I think it was just because most of them don't like it the color selection and I guess that the color section has grown but significantly it, it never yeah. really worked with the tile selection mm. and I think that um, now that the industry has gotten to the whole miter everything now mm-hmm. miter everything even though that you know you got Schluter and other tile edge people getting into a sliver in a in a miter application which I still don't get myself. It doesn't work for me. You might as well just miter at that point. What are your thoughts on mitering and the whole world and everything's going mitering now? We do it all the time. Yeah, everyone, yeah we clients do are time. asking for it all the time. And sometimes, <clears throat> like we had something a little bit more traditional or should I say slash old school. They were five inch by five inch handmade Mexican terracotta tile. Okay. When you're lucky, the the tiles come with like a bullnose, right? Some yeah. guys even forget what those look like, right? So that's one side that's rounded yeah. so that you can finish to where the tiles end, right? Or you've got the double bullnose, so you've got a corner, you've got a round on the on the side and the top. Right? I still like those yeah. for the right application. Yeah, and then you've got pencils sometimes you could use to finish the edge, right? So it's a lot more old school. Um, 
we've done it where we actually mitered the piece and then cut another one and then return it onto itself because it doesn't have uh, a bullnose option. So basically how you would finish a baseboard on an outside corner where the baseboard's not returning. Yeah. So you return it on itself, right? So you stop at the outside corner, you miter your baseboard, then you cut a little piece and then you glue it so that it's finished all around, right? So we do the same thing with the tile. We would miter the tile, then we'd miter a little piece, then we'd cut it and then glue it to the side. So when you're looking at it, so it looks like it's full body, that it's like returning. And then you've got this tiny little sliver um, of grout um, or epoxy and just makes it look pretty Perfect. awesome. It looked yeah. like it was fabricated that yeah. way. So we do a lot of backsplashes like that these days. Yeah. So Ansax has a beautiful ribbed tile that I, I personally really like. It's, yeah. Um, the ceramic, so it's a Japanese-made ceramic, and the outside edge isn't very finished, right? It has the glaze that comes over. So even if you try to find one edge that looks kind of semi-finished, it just doesn't look It's finished, not a finish, finished right? Yeah, and that rib tile doesn't look good with a trim, right? It just, it's it's up and down, up and down, and then you put this trim, and it's a very, they have very distinct colors, right? Like they've got this bronze, really golden bronze color, and they have another one that's like rice paper, so it's kind of like a turquoise greeny blue with like a cream to it. Like it's, they're really beautiful, vibrant colors. Like you cannot, or you shouldn't use a trim with something like that. Do people do? Yes. Of course. Right? So what we do is, the, the tile is only about five sixteenths thick, so we would miter that piece, and then we'd make a little five sixteenths mitered piece to wrap the the ribbed along the side. Holy cow. So when you're looking at the backsplash, you're you you see only the ribbed tile, and then you grout it, and then you've got this beautiful finished outside edge where it meets the drywall, where it meets the paint. Um, or around the window or whatever it is. And it just looks really nice, right? Now, obviously I, it takes time to do that. Yeah, I was just about to say, and you're doing, and each piece is what? Six inches long or 12 inches long? So those pieces in particularly were, uh, they're two by eights. So they're these two inch little, two inch basically by five sixteenths pieces. Okay, yeah. That were mitering and gluing. Eight inches so. long, each piece. Uh, if you were doing the long ways, but generally, like at the end, so the people oh, so would do just it like return. horizontally. Yeah, so yeah, it's just yeah. a little return. Yeah. So most people would do it horizontally. So you're cutting the, the, the pieces um, at 5 sixteenths by the height at two inches, right? Yeah. And then you're making a bunch of them and you're gluing each little piece in. Now, is that you? That's you bringing up that solution to the homeowner designer, or is that the designer coming to you with that solution? That's me. Yeah, I know. I already know the answer. Now. <laughs> I just wanted to say it. That's all it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm always full of ideas. Now, do they always like them? I don't know. But I believe there's always a way. There's always a way to do something. And there's various ways of doing it. And I think as a professional, I think you need to lay out those options. I know a lot of professionals out there, especially in our trade for some reason in the tile industry, I know it's because they get tired or something and they've been doing it too long. They want to 
and I guess most people want to take the short route. Yeah. Right. Like, why would I even? Even if you charge for your time, there's, you can't charge enough for your time to do something like that. You, you just can't. Right. Yep. And a lot of guys um, work on piece work. So why would I spend an extra two hours in this kitchen backsplash to make this backsplash look just like that? or in a certain way when I can buy a $15 piece of, a fifteen piece of trim, cut it in two seconds, slide it in, and call it a day. Right. I've always looked at tile or stone or any application in any residential project. Like you're literally customizing it for that space. It should look like it was just designed and installed for that space. It should not look like a display unit on an aisle in some sort of big box store. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It should belong like, okay, this tile was taken out of earth or it was fabricated in a kiln or something like that. And it was literally dropped and that puzzle fit ABC pieces right in your bathroom, your application. I could show you some pictures after one of my favorite backsplashes. Like one of my favorite things to do is kitchen backsplashes. I think personally. And the reason why, and the backsplash I find, the kitchen backsplash specifically, is what puts the whole kitchen together. Yeah. Because you've got your lowers, maybe connects. a different color, and it just connects everything. Then you've got your stone, um, and then you've got your backsplash. And your workstations, your, your oven, yeah. or your stovetop, your sink, everything. Most people don't stare at your kitchen and go, wow, look at those knobs right no the first thing you're going to see is the backsplash like 95 percent of the time that's the first thing you're going to see why because it's very eye level right it's kind of in your face so we did a backsplash with these beautiful handmade tiles from um there were uh, oh now i can't remember the manufacturer uh they come from california anyways there there are these beautiful stamped handmade tiles that looked really old they were meant to yeah. look very old right um so we did that detail with the mitered on the return because there was no bull nose and stuff so it looked really cool and then we also put a twist so um obviously every kitchen backsplash has um every a meter or so you have to put a plug so Given that, um, plugs, doesn't matter what kind of decor a plug or whatever kind of plug you use, you're going to see it. it's going to be white, it's going to be black, it's going to be stainless steel. There isn't a whole ton of options, right? You could go with bocce, but then you've got these little round holes, but they're either white or black or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So TrueFig has this really cool method, and it has this plate. So we... And these tiles were hexagon, about six inch by six inch, roughly, okay. or six by eight. And since they were handmade, every piece is slightly different, right? So we left out the spots where the plugs were. We cut out the piece where the plug would go. And then that piece was taken, and then they took a basically a diddle image of that, and they printed it onto the faceplate okay. of these plugs. So when you look at the backsplash, you don't see anything. It just disappears. It just disappears, right? All you'll see is the two little slots in the ground where the plugs are. And it looks 
really, really cool. Like well, it's the way it really should neat. look. I, and then you just, it's seamless. You yeah. look on and you're like, wow, this is so awesome. Like, it's really, really nice. And then you're like, where's the plug? And then you got to get a little bit closer. And then you eventually, oh, there it is. Right. But it, it, it makes it for a really nice finish. Now, the true fig plugs are not cheap. And there's a lot of coordination that's involved with the electrician, with us, making sure that it's going to be centered of the tile yeah. or whatever so because you want it to make sense as well right and then you don't know until you get the tile and since there were this one in particular since they were handmade each tile was different yeah. so we had to have like the plug kind of rough and dirty in certain locations which we've kind of located first and then once we've done the tile and left out two tiles for each plug then he can uh, the electrician was able to adjust the box to be where it needed to be. Then we had to cut the tile Jeez. and then I like get it, it printed yeah. and get it digitally imaged and then put it on the plug and then and then install the tile with the plug together. And they'll do the any tile print? They'll or? do any anything. Wow. So the the true fig is the the manufacturer and who made the plugs now it's up to you and how you want it to look like so you have to generally send it out to someone so that would do digital printing for example to put it on to this piece of uh, basically plastic uh, now i've seen people where they'll it'll be hand painted for example right wow. um that way it'll disappear right you've got a fireplace or something you've got a plug on the side you've done some kind of like venetian plaster and then you can like cover it up and then put the venetian plaster on it and then all you see is these like little holes that's it right so it becomes like the king of seamlessness um even over the the botchy plugs right? so that, that makes sense to me i know that at one at one point the electricians had the bright idea of putting it underneath the cabinetry the receptacles but i think that's like it's just pure wickedness man because you're asking clients to now look underneath the car to go and plug in is uh, that even legal i've never seen that before. yeah i've seen i've seen that a few oh, times really? and, and i don't like never it. never seen it i don't like it at all because you have to try to find the plug now right i get that it's disappeared off the backsplash and you're using full slabs or it could be an yeah. onyx or something like yeah. that and you're yeah. spending okay. and the last thing you want to do is chop a hole and put mm. a receptacle in there mm. but then now you've given yourself a headache to try to find the plug to plug in your appliance your countertop appliance and i don't think it worked back to you discussing design over function homeowners still yep. you, any project that we build has to be functional property to the client's needs yes to the client's needs yeah. not to everybody's the different architectural and designers yeah. desires as much as they're the ones that kind of create the idea and the concept get us the work ultimately in the end it needs to be in the best interest of the client yes unless the client's not living there but if he or she or their family is going to be living there for five years, ten years. It's their forever home. It, it needs to be functional yeah. to be for there forever, right? Because you, otherwise, you're just creating a, you know. You're just creating a photograph at that point. And, I mean, renovations are not supposed to be photographs. They're supposed to be living, breathing rooms. I think so. Right? So I think if you failed at the functionality of a room or a home or whatever, you didn't think about the function I think you failed. That's just me. So people still have to use this space, right? Yeah. I see the next trend coming up is a lot of the, I guess, sort of 
Venetian plastering kind of style in mm-hmm. wet areas where you're just yeah. troweling on mm-hmm. material and it's fully waterproof. Have you got into that whole world yet? We've done some of it. Okay. Is it picking up steam? Clients like it? No grout lines anymore? Yeah. Clients really like it. A lot of it, the, the biggest problem when you have something like that is the, like I was telling you about the grout earlier. So when you do it, depending on the humidity, the temperature, and how you're feeling, uh, yeah. uh, it's never the same, right? So you do up a sample of uh, some kind of plaster or something finish. Uh, you have to really educate the client to say, this is an idea. This is kind of how it's going to look like. But what it's actually going to look like is going to be what it actually looks like, right? So We won't know until we install Exactly. So we did one and we ended up having to do it seven times because the client wasn't happy with the finish because it wasn't the same exact how it was with the sample. And I, I explained to her and I explained and she, she said she understood, but it was, oh, you know, can you try it again? Can you try it again? And you know, after the seventh time, it's like, sorry, like, this is the last, like, we can't keep you, you know, eating this. Um, I know I want to make you happy, but you have to understand that it's a breathing, living product, and it's going to be slightly different every time we apply, right? Yeah. Be, we would apply it, oh, it's a little bit too dark. She was very, 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 very specific. Like, oh, we're wow. talking like a shade too dark. Okay, and then we did another one, and oh, it's a shade too light. And, and then, oh, it's a shade too patchy over here, but not over there. It's just like, but you're troweling, you're, you're, you're creating art, yeah. right? It's like asking Picasso to fix the nose of one of his pieces of art, yeah. right? Like he would have, just, he would have told the clients to go fuck yourselves, right? Yeah, I'd be like, like, well, if you don't like it, well then yeah. don't buy my painting. Right? So you were just applying it on top of on top of until you got to a place where yeah, until we got to a place of like no return. Basically, we, we ain't coming back <laughs> wow. to do it again, right? But we're always trying to educate and trying to please the client. Um, now it it gets into more of a deep thing when I've talked to a lot of uh, architects and designers a lot of um, their job and sometimes our job is psychological right um, and sometimes clients are you know all of us has you know our problems and um, sometimes it's transpired or involves us right so for example if the husband wife or you know, bickering or something like that, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, husband said, oh, we should do it this way. And we do it there. And then wife comes in and, well, what are you, why are you doing it this way? Oh, well, Joe told us to, no, don't listen to Joe. And then, <laughs> and then, then there's that like conflict and you're like, oh shoot, like what am I supposed to be doing? And then you talk to the, to the designer. It's like, yeah, no, they, you know, they had a fight yesterday about this whole thing and la la la. Like, let's hold off on this right now. And you're like, oh, man, I'm in the middle of doing this project. And now you're telling me to hold off because they can't seem to separate the, the project from work, but we're humans, right? So things like that, 
it starts getting very complex and then you're almost like a psychiatrist. Oh, that's um, always the case, man. Right. Um, we should be charging for that, by the way. Huh? Therapy. Construction <laughs> therapy, therapy yeah, construction man. Construction therapy. What's this line item here, construction therapy? It's just yeah. CT. That's all it is, man. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to get to a CT scan. <laughs> well, a lot of the customers, you know, because we do a little bit of everything sometimes, too, um, they'll they'll be like, oh, can you do this for us? Like, yeah, we can arrange to get that done and that done. And they're like, oh, wow, you guys can do a lot of things. Like, oh, yeah, we can do massage therapy as well. <laughs> Manicures, pedicures, whatever you need, <laughs> let us know. We can help you. Right? <laughs> full so, stop shop. Yeah, full stop shop. And then that way, you know, then you're set. And hopefully you can keep the client happy. But sometimes, um, and especially for the younger guys out there that haven't experienced this yet, is doesn't matter how hard you try, you could be the best of the best. And you've done the best that anyone could do on this planet on that project that you did and the customer is not happy yeah and that you have to realize sometimes has nothing to do with you nope. or the project now it sucks when the customer is also not happy and then they don't want to pay you but that's for another episode that's another wrong <laughs> discussion but also you you got the mindset of certain tradespeople out there that they just do an okay job and the client is over the moon yeah but in the back of your head, you're They're looking at it going, you showed up. Yeah. Like, oh, like I'm in- I can finally have a new shower. <sighs> I do want to share a little story sure. uh, just as we're wrapping up here, because I know that someone told me about this, how he didn't want to do the job. He handed the job off. To, this is a tile job. He handed it off to somebody else. It was for an elderly couple. The other person dropped the tools off, started the job, was already give, tell, told the client's scope and schedule and everything, how it's going to work. She got irritated for whatever reason. Wasn't that he wasn't doing the job. He, she just started getting vocal because what I think is that when you get certain clients that are retired or elderly, they stew at home. And if you're not there, it's the end of the world at that point, even though you're not scheduled to be there just to start. And she ended up um, sending out an email. If you don't show up today, I'm going to start docking you $500 per day that you're not here. So the person who actually scheduled the job, got it all started, said, listen, we're coming by today to take the tools back. We're not doing the job anymore. She got even angrier. And, and, and she goes, well, you know, what's the big deal? And he goes, well, you made a threat. Sorry, but you made a threat. And then the next day she calls and apologizes for the threat. And he said, no, no, we're, we're picking up the tools and we're getting out of here. Because the moment that you've crossed that line of making a threat, I'm not interested in being in that environment. And you're going to have to find somebody else now to do it. And then the builder got involved as well. And the builder was like, I'm apologizing. I'm sorry that this got to this point. You know, is this a bad thing? I was going, of course, it's a bad thing. You just, you let this client kind of steamroller over you and and to do this. And then the husband of the client calls and he's asking, so are you guys showing up today? Completely playing that oblivious card. And, And he just said, no, no, we picked up our tools yesterday. We're not doing the job. And he goes, well, you know, fuck you. And then I, I don't care about you and I'll badmouth you. And I'm like, Nothing's been done wrong. Everything was scheduled. Everything was getting started. But since they were stewing in a schedule of this should be done now or people should be here now, and then they made that threat of I'm going to dock you $500 a day, it's a wrong thing to do as a client. And I'm speaking to the clients that listen to the show. I go, communication, threatening a, a tradesperson, just the good tradespeople will say, thank you for your time. Goodbye. 
that's it. You, the moment you've crossed that line, you've disrespected me. I'm not interested in being in that area. I don't want to be any around that. So I don't fault him. I said, good for you for saying that you're walking away. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really tough because um, I always find, regardless of the situation we're put in, like finishing the job was always my number one yeah. thing. Sometimes, even though I knew for whatever reason they weren't going to finish paying us or something, or they hadn't, or they weren't going to pay us. Once we started something, we always wanted to finish it, and we tried to do the best to make the client happy, right? But like I said before, sometimes it doesn't matter what you do, they'll just never be happy. No. Right? But threatening somebody um, that in that way, it's almost like we are this type of people, right? The stereotypical construction guy mm -hmm. that or gal that, you know, strolls in and, you know, smells like an ashtray or a bottle of alcohol or something <laughs> like that, right? Which some of us do. Some. But, it's there. Um, it, it happens, but there's the stereotypical that because they smell like that or look like that or we, you know, we don't wear a suit and tie, we don't work the nine to five and people don't understand that. And, you know, and the guys in the construction world, I know one guy, um, he's a painter, his name's Sean. And once he had the first child, um, you know, he used to work this 14, 16, sometimes 18 hour days. And when he had the first child, I said, you know what? I'm not gonna do that anymore. Cause if I keep doing that, I'm going to miss my, my life. I'm going to miss my child's yeah. upbringing. Yeah. So it comes to a certain time of the day. I'm going to stop. And I'm going to go home. Everybody has and the then, right to do that. And, but some clients, they don't think that contractors or trades people don't have the right to have that. It's like, what you're not going to finish today. Hey man, I pushed hard. I can't finish. I'll have to come back tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then they turn um, on you. And then they turn on you like it, that you shouldn't have, there shouldn't be any other priority than doing that because, you know, what are you, right? You're, you're not the doctor, you're not the surgeon, the lawyer, or something like that. But like when you're in the construction world, it seems like you don't have the right to have a life. Yeah. Right. I can play a little bit of devil's advocate because I work a lot as a um, uh, as a self-employed, um, but I always try to make time count when I have it when I'm spending time with my kids and stuff, yeah. um, and you know trying to get out to those vacations, right? Go and you know go away for a week or two or whatever it is that you can. It's important. Um, it's important now, obviously, because of this COVID stuff. It's been very difficult for people to get around. Um, it's become very expensive and so on and so forth. Whenever you get that chance, I think you have to grab a hold of it yeah. because, you know, the kid's only three once, the kid's only four once, yep. the kid's only 10 once, right? So, and the kids upgrow up really fast these days and you just got to take it as it comes. And I, when he told me that, I 
you know, hats off. He said, man, even if I, I'm going to make hundreds or if not thousands of dollars last every month because I'm not working those extra hours and trying to push those jobs, but at least I'll be with my children. Put a dollar value. Put a dollar value to all the time and all the things uh, that are associated with time that you've lost out on with your family. And that's what I get. I get really defensive when I hear stories like a client treating a tradesperson like that because whether they're retired and elderly, they still have their job. They still have their life. And they just completely ignore the fact that you're a tradesperson that has their own life, their own family life, their own problems, their own situations. And then they still have their day job. Plus, the majority of us are entrepreneurs and we work for ourselves. Smaller percentage, I guess, is all you know, working for other corporations or whatever. But the majority of us are having to deal with that job, complete that job, satisfy the client, find the next job, feed our our own employees. Like we have a lot that's going on. So fine, if we commit to eight hours working on your job, your house, I push, I push, I push. I still have to commit another three, four hours to find the next job, prep the next job. Then I have to spend family time, friend time, my own time. So for you to turn around and go, I'm going to threaten you now to dock you $500 for you not, like, come on. That's ridiculous. That's not fair, and it should never be called out, and you just lost an opportunity to work with somebody that's going to do a good job. Hopefully, karma comes back and bites them in the ass, and they hire somebody that's bad, and they do a horrible job, and they deal with that. And it's not my problem. It's not his problem. But you should never speak to any tradesperson that way. No. Give that ultimatum, right? No, it's wrong. Let's get out of here, Larry. Thank you so much. I think we touched a a lot about uh, details here and learned a few more things. And uh, anything else? I don't think I think we kind of touched upon. I'll wait until you travel back here again and we'll do it again. We can can touch a little uh, (laughs) base with the the large format quickly if you want. Sure. the, uh, what I was saying in the beginning of the show, how the uh, the old school guys had different things to deal with than we have now, which is like the electrical, the plumbing, um, these large format tiles. So now you can't just show up with a bucket of trowel, nippers, and cutters anymore. You've got to have a team, right? So, and and then it goes back to the education. So there's got to be someone or something that we could gather this information to be able to help those guys that are currently doing the trade or would like to get into it to give them the at least the basic tools that they need in dealing with certain products certain applications you know how do i do a curbless shower when it's you know a plywood substrate on the second floor of a house right um how how do i go about doing that and how do i get to that um to make those decisions right so i've i've thought personally um i would i would like to come up with some kind of like almost like a consultation okay so uh, a tile setter, homeowner, designer, architect would basically, you know, book half an hour and send some drawings or send some information. And we would, you know, sit and talk for half an hour through video call, phone call, whatever it is. Right. That way they can give me all the information and I could answer to the best of my knowledge to what they're trying to do 
for the application, right? Do I use stone? Do I not? How do I create that curbless shower? How do I? Do you think you know, clients and walls? designers how do will? I do all those kinds of things. You think right? they'll see the value in that? I think so. Yeah. I get phone calls a lot, and I always tell the designers and architects and say, "Hey, feel free to always reach out if you have any questions, right?" Because the ones that are very outward and considerate and trying to grasp the whole project they want those little details yeah. when they're at the planning stages so you don't get the phone call going we've got this and that and the other thing you've drawn it this way this isn't going to work what now yeah. and then then the designer architect or homeowner or contractor now we've got a come up with an idea or uh, a resolution and it has to be done relatively quickly right where if you've gone through the thought process and knew your options before when you go to do the job then there's there's no discrepancy there's no it becomes smooth sailing but tile and stone is such an ever-changing animal somebody homeowner designer contractor can walk through a supplier see something think it's absolutely gorgeous it's perfect get a sample maybe even get lucky and get a full-size sample drop it on the job site and go mm, i'm on the fence and then all of a sudden a week or two later i don't like it then go back and do the same thing then commit to something it arrives on site then you start installing it and they're like i'm back on the fence oh, that's it's, it's an ever-changing animal because it is that custom we don't know for sure what it's going to look like in the finished product. And I guess we Until can't really get to the 3D modeling of something because it's almost going to cost the same way to create that as a 3D model to show them what this potential room is going to look like with that tile install and put it all together. Clients won't pay for that. But like, even then, even if you were able to create it in a virtual aspect, what you see is not what you're going to get. It won't be the it same. It still won't be yeah. the same. So right? they can create it, look at it. Oh, you know what? It looks yeah. amazing. And then all of a sudden start stalling it. Mm, don't like it. Yeah, yeah. And they could even refer to, the, you know, the, their VR. Like, hey, put these on. Okay, now, <laughs> now take them off and look at the floor. See, it's completely different, right? It's not what you showed me. So I, I think the biggest thing is educating your contractor, your designer, your architect and especially your customer that you take your experience and say hey I know you've you've picked this white matte tile that you really like and I when we spoke I know you like making lots of homemade spaghetti the white matte tile in your kitchen is probably not going to be the best let's have a conversation option. yeah it's right. true but then right. you'll fight design, trends, homeowner, portfolio. And I'm like, I'm sorry, all of that trumped by function. Yeah. Function will always trump all of that. I think so. If you want this kitchen to be a working kitchen, a working bathroom, or working whatever, which is the room. It's not a showpiece. It's not a, a showroom model home. It's not any of that stuff. Someone's living, breathing, family, using getting together, friends, family, get all that crap. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. So if there's going to be pasta fights and whatever and all kinds of stuff like that, then you might not want such an absorbing white stone in that application. Yeah. 
All right, man. All right, uh, against, uh, well, uh, Key Tile Co., right? Key yeah, Tile Co.? Key Tile Co. and Key Surfaces. You key Surfaces. It. And then reach out. It's info at Key Tile Co., right? Yeah. At, right. Uh, and yeah, then the website. Keytiles.ca. And then we've got uh, Key Surfaces at Gmail. Thanks very much, Larry. Thank you, man. It's good to have you back in the country, great. safe and sound. And I was envious of you sending me pictures from Portugal there. And I got to make my way out there as well. No, there's no apology. <laughs> I love seeing those photographs, man. They're amazing photographs. Yeah. All right, let's get out of here. Right, sounds good, man.